Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Crimes against humanity are ongoing in Burma, and they are being committed by the state against the Rohingya people. This is a minority community in Burma that has historically faced intense discrimination, but there was some degree of hope that as the country transitioned to a democracy, the situation of this community would improve. Alas, we are now nearly a year into the leadership of Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, and the plight of this minority community is as dire as ever. A number of recent reports have indicated an uptick in violence against the Rohingya, including what appears to be the systematic use of rape and sexual violence. One of those reports was published by Human Rights Watch on February 6, and on the line with me to discuss the report and the broader situation of the Rohingya in both Burma and across the border in Bangladesh is Brad Adams, the Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. This is a fairly undercovered story, but one in which I've tried to highlight on the podcast over the years. And I think it's kind of fair to say that much of the news focus, much of our attention, even you know my attention, the podcast attention, has been on the, the new Trump administration. But I think it's important not to lose sight of these other important global stories, even as uh, we focus our attention on events in Washington, D.C. and the United States. So this is kind of me doing my part to try to shine a spotlight on an important global story that is kind of being overlooked uh, due to the the unrelenting stream of news coming from Washington, D.C. And it's, you know, something which I'll, I'll aspire to do and, and try to do over the course of the next several months with this podcast as well, not to lose sight of those other key global stories that are happening around the world, despite or in spite of what's ever happening in Washington, D.C. And a quick note before we start, I just hit publish on this episode moments before I boarded a flight to Dubai, where I will be participating and covering the World Government Summit. This is a international conference that focuses on how governments can better design policies to serve their people, but also serve the interests of sustainable development and the sustainable development goals. There's a heavy UN participation in this conference. So if you're in Dubai, if you're at the World Government Summit, uh, hit me up, go to the contact page on Global Dispatches podcast.com to uh, to send me an email or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Even if you're not there, send me an email. I love hearing from you guys. And now here is Brad Adams of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We interviewed refugees in Bangladesh. Uh, these were all Rohingya Muslims who come from what's called Rakhine State in Burma. 
they fled violence uh, by the security forces and uh, some unidentified civilians who are allied with the security forces in Burma, uh, largely in October, November, and December of 2016. Uh, this was a security sweep by the Burmese authorities in retaliation for an attack on police in which nine people were killed. Uh, and the people in uh, Bangladesh described how their villages were literally burned down. Uh, Human Rights Watch has uh, satellite imagery that uh, corroborates this in many parts of this uh, state in Burma, and uh, how they were forced from their villages, uh, how m uh, men in particular were taken and marched away from the broader population. Um, but the report focuses um, primarily on sexual violence, uh, which we think is part of a pattern and is directed. Uh, there has been a long history of sexual violence uh, by the Burmese military against different communities, uh, including along the Thailand border, but this state is along the Bangladesh border. Um, and, uh, and the violence was against women and girls, and it was often accompanied with comments about the ethnicity and religion of the victims, and it was often gang rape, and uh, it was often um, done with such little fear of consequence that it was done out in the open and visible mm -hmm. to other witnesses. Is it is it your contention that um, these incidents of sexual violence are part of a systematic campaign? That is, they're not just like a few bad apples, a few rogue soldiers committing these human rights violations, but are, are part of like a, a broader pattern? Yes. Uh, the Rohingya have been subjected to systematic campaigns of violence in the past. We documented hundreds of deaths in a similar round in 2012 uh, when there were two outbreaks of widespread violence against the Rohingya uh, in Rakhine State that led to uh, thousands and thousands of people being internally displaced and fleeing to Bangladesh. I remember that. Uh, I read that report um, from, yeah. from Human Rights Watch uh, a few years ago uh, in which there was you know, just like sort of systematic mass you know, internal displacement, right? Yeah. We called it ethnic cleansing at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we also called it crimes against humanity. Um, the regular community has often described it as genocide. We're not um, convinced that's the appropriate term because that's a very, very high bar. But, I mean, this is very serious, widespread, and systematic uh, violence against a particular community because they're Muslim, because they are called Bengali, because their ethnic roots um, are from Bengal in what is now Bangladesh, but actually was part of uh, India uh, at the time that the largest number of Largest amount of migration occurred of people to Burma, and, and it's, um, it's worth probably pointing out that they're called Bengali as a way to strip them of their citizenship in Burma by assuming that they're uh, from this other country, Bangladesh, next door. But Bangladesh doesn't even sort of want them. They they are in sort of deplorable conditions in in refugee camps there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the government has an official policy of not using the term Rohingya. Uh, um, calling them Bengalis as, as a pejorative term. And it doesn't just strip them of their citizenship. Uh, it, uh, it strips them of their identity. You know, it's up to the, the Rohingya to call themselves what they want to call themselves. And 
Um, sadly, Aung San Suu Kyi um, has defended the refusal to use the word Rohingya. Um, she, she has called them Rakhine Muslims because they live in Rakhine State and they are Muslims. Uh, I mean, that could be a that could be a positive term because it does suggest that they have an affiliation with Rakhine State in Burma, which uh, you could say underpins a claim to citizenship. But it actually represents a capitulation by Aung San Suu Kyi and her party to nationalists, to racists, to bigots. Um, and uh, you could compare it to some of the uh, the nationalist, white nationalist movements in North America and Europe who have done the same to other minority groups. So I wanted to get get back to that, but before we, we go back, can you also talk a little bit about this report that came out uh, a few days before Human Rights Watch report from the UN's Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights, which I suppose probably comes to many of the same conclusions uh, that your report does? Yes. Uh, I mean, we published a report uh, in, uh, we've published a number of small reports in November, December, uh, and, and then again today. Other organizations have, um, and the Burmese government has systematically denied all the allegations. They even on uh, the state counselor's office website, and Aung San Suu Kyi is the state counselor, said that allegations of sexual violence were fake, and they put this term fake rape on their website. Yeah, I saw that. The, I, I, I found yeah. the link from your report and, and was taken to the website of the Burmese government with that like fake rape um, uh, image that's sort of almost like a Twitter meme that was really kind of bizarre. It's appalling because uh, we expect more of the civilian government and Aung San Suu Kyi. We didn't expect more of the army because the army's been using sexual violence as a tactic for years. Uh, but we didn't expect them to go into this kind of full denial mode. Um, and the reason I mention this is because, you know, these allegations that are in the United Nations report from last Friday have been out there by credible organizations such as ours, but they've been denied. Having the United Nations come out with a report uh, basically using the same methodology. They did interviews in Bangladesh of refugees and coming to the same conclusions about extrajudicial killings, arbitrary detention, torture, and sexual violence is important because it's really hard for the Burmese government to go into full denial mode about what the United Nations says. Um, yet, today, the foreign ministry spokesperson did go into partial denial mode where she said... You know, we we have been subjected to lots of fake allegations. Um, so we will look into these, but we, we have to determine whether they're accurate. There's no need for the Burmese government to try to determine whether they're accurate. The United Nations has no political agenda. Human Rights Watch has no political agenda. We have no reason to make these things up. In fact, we sure wish they weren't true. Um, so you referenced this earlier Um but these crimes and, and that are being committed by the state uh, seem to be sort of happening in a context in which there is this kind of profound democratic transition that seems to have pretty firmly taken hold in uh, Burma over the last couple of years. You mentioned earlier on Song Suu Kyi, she's the Nobel Peace Prize winner who is now the basically de facto uh, political leader of the country, but is there through sort of elected means. She, she, she uh, led the transition against the, the military uh, junta that had led the country for decades. So 
I, I guess how can you put these abuses in in the context of this democratic transition that that is underway? I mean, it would seem that like a, a fully democratic state would not undertake these kinds of abuses. Yeah, well, Burma is not a fully democratic state. Uh, one of the you know key problems in the country is that the military put poison pills into the constitution. First, they reserved 25% of all seats in parliament for military appointees. So the military has put a lot of soldiers into parliament. Um, second, the, the constitution requires three quarters plus one to amend the constitution. So uh, the military can block all constitutional amendments. Third, uh, the military under the constitution controls the military, the police, and the border guards. These are the units that are accused of these human rights abuses. And so the civilian elected government has no control over the security forces in the country. Uh, fourth, the Constitution barred Aung San Suu Kyi from running for president. She's effectively, as you mentioned, gotten around that by creating this new office of state counselor. But the civilian government kind of sits atop and alongside the old guard. And, um, and so the transition to democracy is very incomplete. And one of the reasons given for Aung San Suu Kyi not taking a stronger position is that there is a concern that if she pushes too hard up against the military on any of these issues, including holding them accountable for these horrific human rights abuses that we've documented, that there could be a coup. The military could just decide that the experiment with democracy, however incomplete it is at this point, should end, and they'll go back to running the country. And that's not a small concern. That's a concern that uh, many people in Burma have, including many elected members of the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good reason for Aung San Suu Kyi to be silent, for her not to take up the cause of a persecuted minority. I don't think any public official um, should ever do that. But it, it does it does mean that there needs to be some delicacy in how she goes about Mm -hmm. trying to reform Burma's institutions. And and is it fair to say, I mean, based on, on my understanding, my reading of, of the politics of the situation, that it's not like unpopular to go after the Rohingya, right? That they, they are a persecuted minority who are, um, you know, just, just sort of there in which they face systematic discrimination and prejudice in, in society at large. Yeah. I mean, the law that prohibits them from having citizenship uh, effectively prohibits them from having citizenship is decades old. It's not new. It was put in place by the military under their under the military dictatorship. And um, so it'd and, be like know, a populist move by by the the military, say, if they wanted to uh, continue their persecution and you know unseat on Song Suu Kyi. You know, we're all learning about um, this. What seems to be fairly um, widespread bigotry towards the Rohingya in real time, because Burma being a dictatorship, it, there weren't a lot of academics or human rights people uh, going around the country doing studies of you know, anthropology or sociology, or, and there were no good polls about political views. So we're seeing this play out in real time, and it's a mystery to uh, most people why the Rohingya are uh, you know, widely reviled and targeted, because um, this is a minority group that lives in a very small part of the country. It's probably a million out of about you know, 65 to 70 million Burmese people uh, in the entire country. Most Burmese people will have no direct contact with Rohingya ever. They won't know them. The, the Rohingya don't have any impact on, direct impact on their lives. 
it's not like the Rohingya are going around the country taking people's jobs. It's not like their um, numbers are increasing dramatically and affecting national culture. I mean, all the kind of arguments you would hear, for instance, in the UK about why people voted for Brexit um, don't really apply. Um, and of course, I, I, I'm not a proponent of Brexit and, and the and the um, mm-hmm. prejudice that was involved in some people voting for Brexit. But my point is that it, it's it's not clear why the Rohingya have been set up as this um, unpopular small minority group that people um, feel free in all parts of the country to use invective against. It's not clear, but it's but the fact is that they are deeply unpopular and. And so is Islam, and this is a this is a prejudice not just against Rohingya. The National League for Democracy, at Aung San Suu Kyi's direction, fielded no Muslim candidates in the, nas- in the last national elections, zero, even though there were prominent Muslims in their ranks. She made a decision not to have Muslims stand as candidates, which raises the question, is she herself prejudiced? Is she a bigot? Or was this just a really cold political calculation? And if it's just the latter, that's also not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there is a problem there in the civilian government, in the military, and throughout society. So um, as these, these attacks have, have occurred, as these, this sort of discrimination has uh, you know, unfolded and, and become more and more acute, thousands uh, have crossed the border and fled to Bangladesh, which, you know, is a Muslim-majority country. Uh, so it's hard to think, you know, in, at least in the Bangladesh context, that Islam is like the, the variable here. Um, th- but in Bangladesh, they uh, are facing really kind of a- atrocious conditions as well. I mean, it seems that the Bangladeshi government wants nothing to do with them. Right. The people who have um, worked with Rohingya in Bangladesh um, since the first large-scale exodus um, in the early 1990s as a result of persecution inside Burma, say that the uh, official and particularly the unofficial camps that people have been living in for over two decades are the worst they've ever seen in the world. And these are people, humanitarian workers, who have worked in sub-Saharan Africa, have worked in conflict situations all over the world, and yet they say the conditions of the Rohingya in Bangladesh are the worst they've ever seen. And that is a direct result of persecution by the Bangladeshi government. And um, this, is, this has been done um, by successive Bangladeshi governments of different parties. The, the argument inside Bangladesh is that they are foreign migrants. Uh, we have said yes, but I mean, there should be an affinity between your two communities. And even if there isn't, um, you should treat refugees with the kind of respect that they deserve and provide as much help and sanctuary as you can. But it's it's so bad that the Bangladeshi government has even at various times refused to allow humanitarian agencies to spend their own money, not mm-hmm. Bangladeshi government money, but their own money to provide services to the Rohingya. The yeah, they would kick out organizations. Can... I remember that, you know, fears that they would kick yes, out, like, Save the Children or, or other organizations. That, MSF. That were, MSF, yep, that's right, problems. that was operating yep. there. Yeah, they would, they would just get, yeah. like, revoke their visas. And that was a that was a after a proposal by donors to spend thirty million dollars in the areas where the Rohingya live, and to put some of that money aside for the local community, because the Bangladeshi government has argued, uh, why should 
donors provide money to the Rohingya when even the Bangladeshis who live in the same areas are very important. So the donors said, okay, we'll take you up on that. We will um, not only provide support to the Rohingya, but we'll provide support to local people. And still the Bangladeshi government said no. Mm-hmm. Um, so there now the the newest sort of wrinkle in this relationship between the 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 refugees in the Rohingya refugees and the Bangladeshi government seems to be this proposal that was floated uh, recently about relocating refugees to some desolate island off the coast of Bangladesh. What can you tell me about that yeah. that proposal? Um, it's just incredibly heartless. It's it's. It's unthinkable. Well, what are I mean, they proposing to do? What, what exactly did the government propose? They propose to put the Rohingya on an island that floods with the tides. It's not really even an island. It's a. It's it's like a um, a mud pile uh, of waste and other debris that has formed, and that at low tide and in the in a dry season, um, you know, provides some landmass uh, offshore, but at high tide and in the rainy season, uh, there will be water up to you know people's ankles, knees, and higher, and it's uninhabitable, and it's a non-starter. It's ridiculous. Have you uh, seen that I, yourself, that, that island or whatever you would call it? Uh, no, I haven't personally been to it, but it's been described by you know credible sources, and you can also see it from uh, satellite images. And... Um, and why the Bangladesh government is making this kind of really evil proposal, because who would do this to other human beings, is, is hard to understand, except it's some kind of, for some kind of domestic consumption in Bangladesh so they can show that they're being tough on what they consider to be illegal migrants. The irony here, of course, is that Burma claims that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh and Bangladesh claims they're illegal immigrants from Burma. So they are between the proverbial rock and a hard place. So what's what what's to be done? What what are are some realistic political solutions to this now very long-standing humanitarian crisis? Well, the there are three baskets here. The humanitarian um, response needs to be to um, get the Burmese and Bangladeshi governments, but particularly the Burmese government, to allow full and unfettered access to humanitarian organizations to provide assistance to the Rohingya who have been harmed in the last few months, which number in the tens of thousands in Burma and uh, approximately 65,000 in Bangladesh, but also 120,000 people who were uh, pushed out of their homes and villages in 2012 who live in what are effectively internment camps. They, They are not getting access to enough food, clean water, healthcare, education, et cetera. So there's a humanitarian imperative. There's a human rights imperative, which is that it needs to be, and this is what the High Commissioner of Human Rights said on Friday, an independent international investigation into the abuses. And again, there needs to be access for human rights monitors. The High Commissioner of Human Rights had to do its research in Bangladesh, as we did. The report we issued today was done in Bangladesh. Nobody uh, has, no independent um, entity has been able to go into uh, Rakhine State and interview people on site about what happened, and that needs to happen. And then third, there needs to be a political um, solution here. And in this respect, there's a, the most hopeful um, possibility is a commission that was appointed by Aung San Suu Kyi, led by Kofi Annan, the former UN Secretary General. 
And uh, it's made up of three foreigners, including Kofi Annan, six Burmese people. And they are meant to report in March uh, and make recommendations for a solution to this longstanding crisis. I have to say we were hopeful about this commission because it appeared that Aung San Suu Kyi was basically going to delegate and offload the recommendations to solve this problem to Kofi Annan. And I, I expect Kofi Annan would not sully his reputation by making poor recommendations. He's actually got a lot of credibility, and I, and, um, and I think almost everybody expects him to make very strong recommendations about citizenship, about humanitarian access, about end human rights abuses, um, all sorts of things about health, education, and welfare. But that uh, that commission was appointed before this latest outbreak of violence, and the political dis- discourse about the Rohingya in Burma has gotten worse. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's unclear whether, if he makes strong recommendations, whether Aung San Suu Kyi will have the courage to endorse them. Like he has the political space to potentially make those strong recommendations and open up the political space, I should say, for Aung San Suu Kyi to take him up. But in the midst of hardening rhetoric against Rohingya, that 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 space seems to be closing. I think that's the that's the concern. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has to also carry six Burmese members of that commission uh, to make strong recommendations, and it's not clear whether they would a be inclined to, and b whether have the mm-hmm. have the courage themselves to make them. The commission really, you know, the idea of it being three, four hundred and six Burmese was probably a pretty flawed structure in the first place. But if, you know, if anyone can make strong recommendations that get buy-in from the international community and some segments of Burma, I think this commission is the one that can do it. Uh, All right. Well, uh, Brad, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to those of you who have written uh, reviews on iTunes for the show. I I appreciate the support uh, based on my kind of call to action last week. Thank you. It really does help other people discover the show. The more uh, reviews that the show gets, the higher search rankings are in the eyes of whoever designs the algorithm for iTunes. So thank you for that. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye.